All right, 1 John chapter three, um, this is the middle of the book of 1 John. And so let me catch you up. Uh, essentially, here's the entire first two chapters of the book of 1 John in a quick summary. Um, everything you saw in Jesus Christ has been true since before the foundation of the world. Jesus did not inaugurate a new reality about God. He just simply showed you what God was always like because God was like Jesus, exactly like Jesus. God had always been like Jesus. We did not know that, but now we do. And it turns out when Jesus gets about forgiving sins, he doesn't just just forgive the sins of Jews. He forgives the sins of everybody everywhere. Then he sort of ends all of his theology. And essentially he says, what difference does it make if you're the most theologically correct church in Auckland, if you're not known for being the most loving group of people in Auckland? What difference does it make if everything you know about God does not somehow translate into being a more loving person in our community? And the whole rest of the book is him calling Christians to be people of love. Now, with that as the context, let's read 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. For we know that we have passed from death to life because we get all of our doctrines straight. Nope. We know we passed from death to life because we did the right ritual at the right moment at the right time in the right posture. Uh-uh. We know we passed from death to life because our eschatology is perfect. No. We know we've passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. And anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. Now, let's explore what happened and let's, let's sort of break this thing down as to what it means to be a person of love. Because if I was to say something obvious, like we should be known for being the most loving group of people in our world, no one's gonna, no one's gonna, no, no, we need less love. That, that doesn't matter. Words don't matter. How people picture words working matters. And so if I say we need to be people of love, what matters about that is how we picture that word working. And John gives us some pretty cool pictures of how that works. Uh, next slide. So essentially when you love, John says you're experiencing some version of eternal life now. And conversely, when you hate, you're experiencing some version of death, darkness, and decrease now. See, see, see for us, Life and death are static images. You live or you die. That's how Western people think of life and death. Ancient Hebrew people, although they acknowledge there's life and death literally, it was metaphorical. There was a symbolism in it. Life and death were dynamic dimensions that you could move in and out of. Life was tied to living in God's ways and death was tied to bringing your life to disrepair outside of God's ways. And in scripture, it's presented as a choice. Life or death, choose life that you might live. Obviously not literal life. No one chooses when they're born. No one chooses when they die. So there was this element of life and death that were as a choice to live inside God's way. See, for us, the question tends to be how to have life after death. And amen, sure. But, 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 the, but the question for John in this book is how to have life before death, how to live now. How to experience, see, eternal life wasn't something for them that started after you die. Eternal life starts now and then just carries on after you die. The word he uses is metababakamen. 
Metapabegamy is a long Greek word that just means to change. Next slide. That just means to change basis. It essentially, it says, well, if you're on the basis of death and you want to know that you've been moved to the basis of life, you, you, your first choice is to choose to be a loving person. Now, again, that's not helpful until we have some sort of image around what that is. So John says one point into entering life is to choose to be loving and to be a loving person. And, and the example he uses is that if you see all of life as a gift, Let, let's say this way, next slide. So central to Christianity is seeing all of life as a gift. And I mean, some big things are free. Things like life, free. None of us deserve to be here. None of us introduced our parents. None of us gave them amorous feelings for each other. And because of where I am, none of us deserve where we're born. If you, if you had the privilege of waking up today legally in New Zealand, you're in one of the top five greatest nations on the earth. A nation with motor cars, paved roads, stores that prepackage food for us, clean water in our taps, machines that do washing, other machines that do drying, world-class healthcare right down the road, and it's largely free or at least very affordable. No one in New Zealand is scared of going broke if they get sick. Why? Because this is one of the greatest nations. When I hear New Zealanders complain about New Zealand, let me be blunt. Where you gonna go? Option B will not be as good. Like this is a great place. Like a ridiculous, life's free. Breath, free. Everybody take a deep breath in. And out, that's free. I don't deserve that. It's a gift. It's actually the Spirit of God giving us 24 hours of a gift of His breath. The question is, what are we gonna do about it? And we all take gifts for granted until they're taken from us. Like, and the value of the gift isn't noticed until it's removed, right? Like, like nobody noticed, the only people in here that don't take breath for granted are asthmatics, people with pneumonia. If you have pneumonia, what are you doing here, right? <laughs> Emphysema, some kind of genetic problem with your lungs. Like, that, that, these, these people take breath they, for the value, but, but people, normal people that have normal lungs like me, I, like just take breath for granted. We just breathe in, unless it's taken from us. Years ago, I was, I went to dinner and I won't, I'll spare you the details. I, I, let's just say I was trying to make a great first impression <laughs> and I failed to. It was a Thai restaurant in Chermside on the west side of Brisbane. And we got the salt and pepper calamari uh, entree and, uh, and I bit a piece of that squid and swallowed it, but the vein was still there. And so part of it went down my esophagus. The other part went down my windpipe. And uh, it cut my air off completely. It's the only time in my life I've ever choked, ever. And I gotta tell you, it was a daunting feeling. Suddenly, no air. Everything I thought mattered did not matter. The, the, the impression I was making didn't matter. I didn't care what anybody thought. You should have heard the noises coming out of me trying to get this up, right? Money didn't matter. I'd have wrote a check for everything I owned for one more breath as soon as it was taken. And that, that didn't matter. Like, and things that you normally are not okay with, you're okay with. Like a Thai man I've never met putting his fingers in my mouth. I'm normally not okay with that. That day I was. This little dude come out of the kitchen. They were yelling, right? He put me in a reverse headlock, shoved his fingers down my mouth. And I loved it. And I was like, oh yeah, get you some of that, right? 
I'm normally not okay with a man sticking his fingers. I'm not okay with anybody sticking their fingers in my mouth. That day, I loved it. Why? Because the gift was taken from me. It's free. Forgiveness is free. Like, I, like nobody's story is this. You know what? God wasn't going to forgive me. And then I did a certain ritual at a certain place at a certain time, a certain posture. And God was like, you know what? I wasn't going to forgive you, but now I will. <laughs> it's free. Resurrection's free. Like, the, 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 resurrection is not something that happened once. The cross and resurrection is not something to believe in. The cross and resurrection is a fundamental way of seeing our whole world. So it's just more profound than that. Like, if you look at the back of your hand, just notice that the skin on the back of your hand is 28 days old. 28 days. 28 days ago, that skin didn't exist. And we know that, like, in, like this is why in the winter, if you wake up and there's dandruff on your pillowcase, you don't panic. No one goes, oh no! I'm losing skin at an alarming rate. At this rate, I'll be dead in 28 days. No, you just know that death leads to life because God in Christ established resurrection as a fundamental way of seeing the world. So death never gets the last word. It's not that suffering doesn't happen. It's just in the Christian worldview. It's not that it gets no word. It's just, it never gets the last one. Like, it's, like that's free. These are big things, free gifts. And if we see all of life as a gift, that fundamentally changes how we see our world. Like if that's true, next slide. If life is a gift, then certain things don't belong in life or in the light. Things like greed, like hoarding to yourself. No, 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 we're part of this whole, if all of life's a gift, and to, to, use hyper, to use a hyperbolic example, murder, that doesn't belong. Murder is saying that your gift of life is less important than mine. Well, that doesn't belong, not if all of life is a gift. Now, if life's not a gift, then there's a place for some of these things. But if all of life is a gift, which is the Christian worldview, I know, I know, that these things don't, things like complaining, that doesn't belong. Imagine complaining about a gift. You would be an absolute jerk. Like, can you imagine at Christmas, you buying someone a gift and handing it to them and they open it and this is their response? Really? That's your best effort, right? If somebody did that, would the problem be with the gift giver or the gift receiver? It's always, which leads me to this question and don't answer out loud. How many of us have complained to God, the life giver about our life? Like just in the last 30 days, don't think forever, that'd be all of us, but just in the, just in the last 30 days, have any of us vocalized our, I think God shuts off all complaints out of New Zealand and Australia and America. Imagine that. Hey, God, somebody's complaining again about what, where do they live? New Zealand. What? Is that that nation with motor cars, paved roads, stores that prepackage food for them, clean water in their taps, machines that do washing, other machines that do drying, world-class healthcare right down the road, and it's largely free at least to four. Is that those people? Yes. There's nothing compelling about being a person that complains about the gift. I, I um, Let me see if I illustrate this with a true story. I I've been on the road 20 years, but before that, I was the single and young adults pastor at a big old church. Um, I loved it. We had a lot of fun. Like we met on Monday nights. The last Monday night I was there, we had 270 single and young adults um, showing up on this Monday night. It was just, it was just so much fun. I, I loved almost all of it, except for single adults are notorious for being solely focused on the one thing they don't have namely a spouse. 
So half my week was this. Shane, we want to be married. We want to be married. Shane, pray for us to be married. Shane, we just want to be married. Shane, would you pray for me to be married? Shane, we just want to be married. Shane, we're believing God for a spouse. Would you just pray for us to be married? We just want to be married. No, you don't. Look, follow my logic here. If you can't cope with the stress of being single, Right? A single person's prayer tickles me. It goes something like this. Dear blonde hair, blue eyed, English speaking Jesus. Um, <laughs> Shane here, I'm 27. I'm able-bodied and I'm single. Let me tell you about my life, Lord. I get to do what I want to do when, when I want to do it. I don't have to ask anybody to do what I want to do when I want to do it. And most importantly, Lord Jesus, no one on earth is spending my money other than me. But despite all these things that I know sounds awesome, I'm still stressed. So I'm asking you to entrust me with one of your beloved daughters in order to make my life harder. <laughs> what? Like what? The other, the other, my, my other job at the church was I was the church psychotherapist. Because my master's is in clinical psychology. And so... I had to do all the, now 90% of church psychotherapy is what kind of therapy? Marriage. So half my week was, Shane, we want to be married. 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 The other half of my week was, Shane, we want to be single. We want to be single. So the married people wanted to be single. The single people wanted to be married. And I'm like, I don't know what to do. I can hook y'all up. I don't know. And look, nobody wanted to bloom in the gift they were given. Look, if you're married, be the best married person in the room. What other hope do you have? Pray for a comet to come to earth to bring you sweet relief. <laughs> and if you're single, be the best single person in the room. There's nothing compelling about a person solely focused on the one thing they don't have. That's not attractive, that's desperate. The most attractive single people on earth are not the ones believing God for a spouse. They're the ones with the throttle all the way to the ground saying yes to the infinite possibilities God has for them. And then one day they might wake up and realize someone's doing that with them. That's attractive. Look, if I could talk to the single adults for a second and uh, you married people better say amen at the end of this. I'm right about this. First of all, there's nothing attractive about being focused on the one thing in your gift that you don't have. Everything you need to flourish is in the field that you've been given so far. And the issue is how well we're using that. That's number one. Number two, you don't need to find the one. That's dumb. You need to become the one that the one you're looking for is looking for. That's number, that's number two. Now, yeah, good, good, good. Hey, hold on. Now, Number three, put your list away. Nothing objectifies a person like making a list about them. Are you serious? And have you seen these lists? Are you, Pastor Shane, I'm believing God for a spouse. I've got my list. I've got my list. I've been a little while back. This guy said, Pastor Shane, would you pray for me? I'm believing God for a spouse. I've made a list. I said, let me see your list. You should have seen this man's list. I am confident this woman does not exist. She was blonde for the sake of appropriateness, curvy. She was smart, successful, passionate, had money, and was emotionally low maintenance. All in one power-packed package. 
I said, mate. That tells you where he lived. I said, mate, this girl's a 10. He said, of course she's a 10, Pastor Shane. When you believe God, you believe God for a 10. He's the God of more than enough. He's the God of the possible. When you believe God, you believe God for a 10. I said, but bro, you're a four. Like on your best day, you're a four. Girls like this don't marry people like you. Girls like this marry brain surgeons. The last thing you need is for God to bring a woman like this in your life. She wouldn't give you the time of day. What you need to do is become a seven yourself. Lower your standards 30% and something might have it. Number four, never, ever, 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 ever ask someone to change while you're dating. Dating is someone's sincerest attempt to impress you. If their sincerest attempt to impress you fails to impress you, leave. Here's what you do when you're dating. Pick the thing about them that annoys you the most. Multiply it by five. Add some occasional horrendous smells and you've got marriage. If you still love them, you've probably found the one. And all the married people said. Amen. We bloom in the gift that, it, it, like it doesn't work to pray and believe God for more if we're not using everything He's given us now. This is, this is John's point. Let's say it in a linear way. Next slide. Since we receive what we don't deserve, we should treat others the same. Here's the question he's asking. Do we treat people as they are worth or as they deserve? Love is a function by which we treat people as they are worth and never as they deserve. Remember one time they asked Jesus, what's the love of God like? And he goes, well, <clears throat> the love of God, look at flowers and birds. God feeds them and clothes them even though they do nothing to deserve it because they're worth it to him. How much more worth are you than that? In other words, to Jesus, the love of God is a function by which we treat people as they are worth and never as they deserve. Watch the point he makes. This is the very next verse. Next slide. Since we receive, oh, sorry. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. So we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. In other words, the cross is not something to believe in. It's a fundamental way of shaping how we see our whole world. If God gave his life for us, not because we deserve it, but because he deemed us worth it, how much more should we be inspired by that to treat others that way? Then he gets very specific with his application. Watch this. If anyone has material possession and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can God be in that? How can the love of God be in someone? I see a need and I know I can meet the need and I do nothing. How could God be in that? And he just leaves it as a question. I love it. Like it's, it's, and, I, and I love what he does. He removes from us the burden of problems we can do nothing about. And actually the temptation of the enemy is to scapegoat big problems that we can do nothing about and give all our attention to ranting on Facebook about stupid stuff we could do nothing about when actually the answer is if everybody's meeting the need they can meet right in front of them, no one would be asking where God is. When the world is asking, where's God? God's saying, where's all those people I gave gifts to? Where's, all, where's my body? What's going on here? If you see a need and you know you can meet the need and you do nothing, how can God be in that? Next slide. 
Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but actions and truth. Now that's a weird sentence in English. If anybody has material possession and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, doesn't read that great. Now, one of the most basic, and don't feel bad about that, scholars full, rooms full of scholars have debated on how to translate that sentence for years. Now, one of the most basic hermeneutics you could do is just read different translations. So, so the NIV says, have no pity on them. I see it. I know I could do something about it. No pity for you. The ISV, or so the NLT says, show no mercy to them. I see it. I know it's within my power to do something. No mercy. The, the ISV says, withhold compassion from them. I see it. No compassion. The ASV says, shut up compassion toward them. I see it. I know I could do something. No compassion. But, but my personal favorite is the King James Version. They just nail it. Check this one. Next slide. Shutteth up thou bowels on them. Isn't it amazing how the English language has changed? In the 1600s, it was a good thing to open your bowels on somebody. It's not, it's a metaphor for being charitable. I got like, I'd like to go, I'd like all of you to keep your bowels shut in my general direction. But, but in this one case, the King James Version absolutely nails the translation. The reason is, is because in the first century, the center of your life was not your heart. It was your bowel. The reason is, is babies come out of here. And so they made logic that life, life's there. So, so it, like, let me, so if you were dating someone in the first century and you said, sweetie, I just love you with all my heart. She'd be like, don't be creepy. Creep is the beating thing in your chest. You're weird, right? You would never say that. If you were dating someone in the first century, you'd be like, sweetie, I just want you to know, I love you with all my bow. Well, if you said that, she'd be like, oh, you move my bowels too. Right? <laughs> the original language, the original Greek, John said it in, next slide. This is what it says. Kleose tash blakna. Kleose, close, ta, the, blakna. Like, no. <laughs> your bowel. For John, the center of life was your splachna, was the bowel. John says, if you see a need and you know you can do something and you clay a setash blackna, how can God be in that? You shut your bowel. Now, we wouldn't say it that way. We would say to close your heart, to close your inner parts, to withhold your life source. But the point John's making about how to enter life and what it really means to be a people of love is this. Next slide. Open your splachna. John says, people of love live with wide open splachnas. What does that mean? It means when we see a need, if I was to say Church Unlimited should be the most loving group in their, in, in, in their world. No, yeah, what does that mean? It means when we see a need and we know it's within our power to meet that need, we open our splachnas all over that need. That this place is a place that we don't get bogged down with stupid Facebook rants about stuff we can't do anything about. We meet the need right in front of us. 
we open our splatness. And John says, if you see a need and know it's within your power to meet the need, really? You hold, withhold, you withhold, you don't do anything. How can God be in that? Now, great sermons aren't meant to be agreed with nor disagreed with. They're meant to be wrestled with for application. So let's wrestle with a few questions. Do you experience God yet leave the same? Like, is your thought, oh man, I don't think church works. I don't think the Bible works. I don't think worship works. I'm coming and I'm doing it. But is that, and look, it might not be that you're a bad person. I'd say it's probably not that you're a bad person, but there's a way to experience God with a closed splachna instead of an open one. And when we do that, the answer is to put aside the white noise of the week and open. Or, or do you relate to someone who's hard to love? You, you know that person you just wish God would go ahead and take them to heaven? You know, that one? Maybe if we heard them out with an open heart, an open splachna, instead of a closed one, it would matter. But the most obvious application for today is, next slide, is in the next one. Do you see a need and you know you can meet it? Do you see a need and you know you could meet the need? In a room this size, it is statistically improbable that there's not one person that could give a gift of $100,000. Let me finish. And you wouldn't even feel it. Your net worth is $8.9 million, and it would take your net worth from 8.9 to 8.8. .8. Oh no, what would you do? Come on, man. Open your splachna, bro. <laughs> You might be thinking, Shane, uh-uh, no, no. No, no, you don't know me, man. I only have like $4. It's all I have is $4 to my name. Okay, then hear me clearly. Then you're not the financial answer to anything. You probably need a job. <laughs> but let's take money and let's put it to the side. Let's put it back here behind the drums. Money doesn't exist. Here's the one thing we all have the same amount of time. All of us have the same amount of that. You mean, could, uh, media, my media friend up there, could you put that slide up about the, the, the volunteer openings, the, the CH team, join the team thing, I, if, if, if it's easy to do? Do you see a need? Y'all making me feel like Chris Rock up here. <laughs> huh? Do you see a need? And you know it's within your power to meet the need? Like, look, um, I don't know who's looking after kids today, but I know I love them. Otherwise, kids will be running around in here. Moms will be spending half the service. Shut up, be quiet terrible. And, and kids shouldn't have to listen to me. I'd be the worst children's pastor on earth. You imagine me speaking to kids. Hi, boys and girls. <laughs> We're going to talk about splackness. <laughs> Pull each other's fingers. What? No. They need age appropriate. Look, at, if, at bare minimum, go tell those people thank you. What, what's our excuse? We can't show up early and be kind to children? Come on, man. Open your splatna, bro. You say, Shane, seriously, I hate kids. They're just, 
disgusting. They're absolutely disgusting. I can't stand them. Okay. You're probably not our children's person. Uh, there's a youth ministry around. I don't know who runs it, but I know here's the next generation in 25 years will be running the joint and you'll be complaining about what they do. But you have no right to complain about where the next generation leads the world if we're not part of molding their values when it's moldable. Can't show up two hours a week and mold the, come on, man. Open your splatna, bro. <laughs> Are you serious? Look at this media team. Look at this screen. Takes people to run this. You can't, you don't have the wherewithal to show up for an hour and a half and make the worship experience. Like seriously, if you see a need and you know you can meet the need and you do nothing, how can God be in that? Mm-mm. Open your splatna, man. Maybe you're a great musician. Let me be very careful with this one. If you're not sure if you're good, get it checked out first. All right. By somebody not named mom. Right. But if you're really good, can't give a couple hours a week to help people cancel the white noise of their week and connect with what God's always been doing. Come on, man. Open your splatna, bro. Say, Shane, you don't know me, man. You don't know me. I'm a jerk. No one would want me on their team. Okay, a couple thoughts on that one. If you know you're a jerk, stop being a jerk. That's first. If what you mean, if what you mean by jerk is you're introverted, if that's what you mean, that's okay. You can always be a sound guy. There's a wall separating you from everybody. Like, like the, seriously, the wall. If you're real introverted, they dress you in all black and be a camera ninja, you know? Listen, you can't do two things. One, complain about your lot in life. Or two, ask God for more gift. If we're not using what he already gave us, why would he do that? So my brothers and sisters, may we be people of love. What does that mean? It means we treat people as they are worth and not as they deserve. What does that mean? It means when we see a need and we know we can meet the need, we open our splackness all over that need. Here's a, there's that free text, that 5301. If you wanna wanna send something that's every leader here would love, just text Splechna to 5301. And what that means is I'm ready to meet with you to find out where I belong. Or you can fill out that join the team thing. Hand on heart. Nobody here told me this was a join the team day. I prayed about what the Lord would wanna say in this service. And this was the sermon I sent without knowing it. Okay. And I sent it Monday. Right? So I had no idea. It just fits perfect. Shows you I pray. And every now and then I get lucky. Okay? <laughs> so, so here's the thing, guys. It's your time to respond. What do we do with this? So I hope Jesus got bigger. The cross worked better. The resurrection is central. And scriptures got bigger, not smaller for you today. Please come on back tonight. I promise you I've set aside something so special. It will change your life. But in the meantime, when we see a need... And we know we can meet the need. May we be a group that opens our splachnas all over it. May we live with wide open splachnas. Grace and peace, everybody.